Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 72, Zen Masters, Dressing the Donkey with Bells and Scarves. In this episode, longtime American Zen practitioner Stuart Locks shares with us the fruit of years of studying Zen from a sociological perspective. The result is a pointed criticism of the ideals surrounding Zen masters and a clear explanation of how the legitimacy, authority, and power of the Zen master are spread through the Zen institution. This is part one of a two part series. All right, so today I'm here with Stuart Lacks. He's a longtime Zen practitioner, and at some point during his practice, he got interested in studying Zen from a more academic and historic perspective, and that led to several articles that he ended up writing and presenting at the Academy of Religious Studies. Is that right? The American Academy of Religion. Right, and uh, the latest article, which um, is which we'll be mostly talking about, is uh, Zen Master in America: Dressing the Donkey with Bells and Scarves. Yeah, I presented that paper at the, uh, I think, two years ago, or a year and a half ago, actually, a year and a half ago, at the American Academy of Religion conference. So, oh, nice. So are you yeah. are you also, a, like, an academic, professional academic, uh, too, in your spare time? N- not really, you know. I just got interested in the academic side of uh, looking at Zen back, I don't know, 15, 15 16 years ago, and... Um, I fortunately met a Chinese, uh, a Western monk that was in the Chinese tradition, and he seemed to be an academically minded monk, which mm-hmm. I had never met before. <laughs> and I, uh, he's actually quite an interesting fellow. And I asked him, "Well, what are you reading?" Just it was just out of nowhere, and he mentioned uh, 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 Griff Fox, who's a pretty well known scholar in Zen, his dissertation. And I, I didn't even know how to get it. So I asked him, how do you get this? And he told me how you get it. And you um, pay $30 or $35, and you got a um, photocopy of it. And it just exploded with me. I and mean, it was just such a different view of how things were. And it was so exciting. It just seemed, wow, this is the way the world really works. This is not, um, you know, this kind of antiseptic uh, cleaned up view of history it was it was something else and i just went crazy then and just started gobbling up um books and papers and uh um, you know through one thing or another i met someone and they said go to uh, you know you can go to this uh, columbia university buddhist seminar and then that led to going becoming part of the princeton university buddhist seminar but uh, so I spent many years studying, uh, reading all, um, reading uh, many academic papers in English, and and uh, buying books and reading it, and becoming really conversant in it, and started going to the conferences, and um, mm. um, it just became, you know, extremely exciting. I went maybe even a little overboard. I became so excited with. Uh, you know, something that's a real history and that how, how an institution really works and mm-hmm. like that. And then uh, somewhere along the line through a friend, I was in his house and found a book on the sociology of religion, uh, uh, kind of nominally like that, uh, a Peter Berger book called The Sacred Canopy, which there it was. You know, I'd been practicing and been involved with Zen for 25 years, and all of a sudden I read a book that's a, a general 
discussion of how religions uh, operate in the world mm-hmm. and their place of uh, socially constructing and building up a worldview. And this guy's describing Zen, my 25 years of practice, my mm-hmm. 25 years of experience around Zen centers. He's describing this in abstract terms. That is very amazing. That's like very powerful, very powerful um, material, right? Right. And um, later, through another friend, I, I got interested in a French sociologist, Pierre Bourdieu, who writes more about um, institutional power and institutional authority, mm-hmm. um, but with very few translations of terms, you can get... Um, you can apply it. To, I was applying it to Zen. I never try to talk about generalized religion because I, I feel like I know Zen right. or some some aspects of it and familiar with the history. I've read a lot of stuff on it. I've practiced it for 35, 40 years now. Yeah. Um, so I stick to that narrow focus. And right. Bordeaux also, he's, you could just, he, he understands how authority works, how it's established and all of that. So it's 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 quite um, extremely exciting when you find something where people are talking in abstract terms and you go, hey, this guy just described 35 years of my experience. Right, right. So you, using oh, he different did it frameworks. In a, yeah, he done it with a language that I didn't have. He did it with ideas that I didn't have. So he's explained to me what I've been seeing and not been able to put together. That's that's what's so exciting about it. Gotcha, gotcha. And and during your forty years of practice, would you just mention a couple of the most important you know teachers you were with or communities that you practice with? Okay, just yeah. to give so a I, sense. I can just give you like a thumbnail sketch of my um, thing. You know, my practice. I sure. started in 1967 uh, in New York City, where I'm from. New York City, actually born in Brooklyn. And uh, so I started at the First Zen Institute in 1967 for a short time, a few months. And then uh, Tassajara, uh, you know, I heard about them in California, the, the monastery of the San Francisco Zen Center. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided, okay, I'll go out there. That sounds, that sounds great, you know, <laughs> monastery in America. And it's starting out. And so I ended up uh, flying to Minneapolis and meeting friends, and we... Drove across the country together in the summer of six, the summer of love. Right, it was a little <laughs> before the spring of love, and it was it was a pretty nutty drive. But um, anyway, I pulled in, got in, I, you know, we split. They were going to do what they were doing, and uh, um, I went into the San Francisco Zen Center, a, a real neophyte in Zen. I had just been practicing two months. Hmm. and said, I'm here, you know, I want to go to the monastery. Mm-hmm. And they informed me that there were about 500 people that wanted to do that. And, but anyway, I started hanging around, and um, they gave me a place to stay very kindly, and um, I started working for the Zen Center. And was that, you know? at the time, was Suzuki Roshi st- Yeah, Suzuki still Roshi died in 71. Okay. So this was uh, 67. Okay. And they had just bought the... Um, the monastery, you know, and we're fixing it up. Most of the time we went down there and worked, you know, taking buildings down, fixing up, cleaning the grounds, preparing for this uh, training period that was going to start, I believe, July 1st. And um, 
they they let me go, you know, and they let a lot of people go. They were very open to it, and then they have a thing called Tangario. That's the first uh, test and uh, test and evaluation. And I thought it's you know they're going to ask questions, and I thought well I could talk pretty well. I could talk my way into this, <laughs> but it turned out that you just sat, and um, uh, I'd say probably a third of the people left in the first two days because. It was just too difficult, or they didn't want to do that, or whatever. But anyway, I stayed there for the first training period, and then came back to New York, and um, didn't want to be with the First Zen Institute for a number of reasons. And uh, mm-hmm. I had met a friend there, um, and he said, oh, there's a better place. And I, I joined up with Edo Shimano's place, mm-hmm. um, the Zen Studies Society. And I stayed there for two and a half years. But I didn't really trust Shimano at, at some point. I started really not to trust him, um, which turned out to be right. Um, and also, it was just very Japanese. So it was kind of like holding up Japan as the, as the holy land and all that kind of stuff. And that, that didn't sit with me well either. And then I heard about Walter Noah up in Maine. And I went up there, and it was... Um, you know, it was a kind of a real American kind of thing. It was not so. It wasn't formal. It was a farm setting, and um, anyway, I ended up staying there for eleven years, um, and became the head monk, and went through Walter's koan course, and did some teaching with uh, beginners. Um, but that thing really fell apart. You know, there's a whole thing out of that. Um, it really fell apart. Walter just uh, lost it, and it was really unfortunate. But mm. uh, like that happens, um, we can go into that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I left, decided to leave after eleven years, which was quite quite difficult to do. Mm. Um, you know, with very close friends, I, I I I lived in a small cabin that I built myself. Um, I was able to practice as much as I wanted, and it was an exquisite setting. Um, it, it was a very simple kind of life. Uh, I had no radio, running water, electricity for 11 years. So, um, wood heat, um, outhouse, <laughs> that kind of life. And right. So it's hard to leave it once you get to live, learn to live that way and really love it. Yeah, it's a, kind of like a monastic lifestyle, it sounds like. That's right. That's what it was. It was a lay monastic lifestyle, so mm-hmm. that was part of a problem, too, that it wasn't lay and it wasn't monastic. But mm-hmm. um, There's a lot of issues. But uh, anyway, I came back to the city and was back to New York because that's where I was from, and I knew, my, knew I could get a place here and knew some people. And uh, and after about a month, I found uh, an ad for a Chinese Chan place in Queens, which was uh, Shifu Shang Yen, or Zen Master Shang Yen. Shifu just means teacher, but he really builds himself as a Zen Master, and I guess he is. Um, and I started going there and became extremely active in that place. And uh, I'd say off and on I stayed there. I would, became the main, I would say, the most active Westerner and had the most responsibility. Um, I I was uh, giving interviews on the retreats, um, which is very important in the Zen and Chan way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, but in that period of time also, I, I took off and spent some three months in a Korean monastery and a number of times went to Master War's place in Northern California for a few months and went to Hawaii and visited places and that. So even though I, I was there 17, 18 years, uh, I did visit many other. I went to Japan twice. Um, so I visited many other places. Um, and then after some time, you know, I saw, you know, things weren't working. I thought, you know, it's just really unfortunate. The same kind of thing starts to happen. They, with the um, problems arise, and with Shang Yan, it wasn't the kind of. Uh, um, scandalous stuff that, that happened, say, with Shimano or Walter or other people, or Baker in San Francisco, mm -hmm. but it was a more subtle kind of thing of, uh, you know, extreme vanity and mm. like that, and so it's hard to be around it and, and, and to see the effects of it and, and like that, and I decided to leave, and so after I left that, um, I've been practicing on my own, which is probably for about eight, nine years, eight years now. Gotcha. In a, a big part of, so it sounds like you studied with a lot of different teachers and been around a lot of different communities and mm -hmm. connected to that, a big part of your, your papers are about the ideals uh, of the Zen master and the way that those are communicated in the tradition. And you really kind of get at it from this unique perspective that you're talking about earlier, this academic kind of objective, more objective perspective. I'm wondering what picture most people have of Zen masters and the communities you've seen and just in general? Yeah. So people think that they live in perfect freedom, that they're really, they live, that they're, that they're simple, uh, that they're totally spontaneous, that they're really filled with humility, um, that they, everything they do is to, comes out of compassion and so even if it seems um, harsh sometimes or it seems mean, it's really for your good. Because that's what they do out of this uh, deep compassion. Everything they do is to help you, mm -hmm. even if you don't see it and no one else sees it. Um, that they live fully in the moment. Um, that they're really calm inside all the time. Um, but one of the main things is they uh, people think they're beyond the understanding of ordinary people. So no matter what's going on, you can't understand the mind of a Zen master. Um, even Shang Yan, you know, um, made claims saying that uh, that the Zen master operates from the enlightened mind. So the um, ordinary person, uh, or yeah, ordinary person, can't understand what they're doing. <clears throat> This is kind of a really essential duplicity of Zen, <clears throat> that the, these, that the, he's not in an enlightened state all the time. He may have had an enlightened experience, and he may have had um, many enlightenment experiences. He may not have had, had any, but he certainly is not in that state all the time. So that's, um, but, you know, he, he said that. And um, but the uh, other important thing is that the they believe the Zen master is the is the last in this chain of unbroken Zen masters uh, that go back 2,500 years to uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. 
Right, right. There's so, I mean, so a common story there, right? That's a common story. That's uh, um, it's common mythology. Um, if someone wants to read the most idealistic description of a Zen master, I would say get that book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and uh, Dick Baker wrote the introduction. And in there, towards the end of his introduction, he gives a description of a Roshi, which is kind of in America synonymous with Zen Master. Mm -hmm. And uh, he starts it out with, a Roshi is. So he's not saying, I'm describing Suzuki Roshi, whatever I think of him. He's saying, a Roshi is. So it appalls, you know, according to him, it applies to all Roshi. Right. The interesting thing is, when he penned this introduction, he knew already that Suzuki was going to make him uh, his heir. Mm. So, in a sense, he was feathering his nest already by talking this way. Right? And I, I think that was probably intentional on Baker's part. Um, um, that's my view. Right. Right. Uh, but that's a common, uh, a common uh, trade in Zen. People don't talk about their own attainment or that. What they do is they let the institution do it for them. They they, they talk about the lineage or they talk about the greatness of their uh, teacher. And if the teacher is so great and I'm his heir, well, you don't have to be a genius to think, hey, this guy must be pretty good because the teacher, his teacher was so great. Or they talk about the lineage. It's constant. Look on almost any Zen website or read his Zen book, and there will be this lineage thing because it, um, it, it gives legitimacy and authority to, to that uh, person who's uh, the living one, the last in the line. And people really believe in that. I'd like to give a little story. Sure. Uh, um, it was uh, when I practiced with. Uh, uh, Shang Yen, there was a lawyer that used to come from the West Coast. He was about 45 at the time. Somewhat successful lawyer, not a billionaire, but he was comfortable and bright guy, did his, did his law practice, and was a real true believer type. And he said, you know, there was a, the, the meditation hall was a, a bit away, I don't know, 40 yards away from where Shang Yen uh, lived or his house but he stayed there up and this was up in their country place mm-hmm. well this fellow said um when uh shang yen walks from his house to the meditation hall he as he's walking here he knows what's going on in everyone's mind in the meditation hall <laughs> right so there's like a hundred people in there and now, Shang Yen never said that. In fact, he would clearly deny it if someone said it to him. Yet here's a guy, he's 45, he's not a kid, he's a lawyer, um, practicing lawyer, uh, involved with his practice, and this guy happens to have a, a, a rich imagination, and he's taken all the Zen stuff he's read, and he's put that together, and actually believes that. Mm. Right? Right. I mean, I could see where he's, you know, he, how he's manufactured that with all these stories about the Zen master and that when, you know, if, when you wait online to go to, to interview or Sanzen in the Rinzai tradition, when you hit the bell, he could tell already everything that's about you. Right, right. There's all these kind of stories, but this guy kind of embellished it to know, now that he's, you know, he had a rich imagination, 
But this is not a kid. This is not a, a guy that's not used to doing real analytical thinking. This is a, he's a bright guy, and that's what he said. And in all honesty and sincerity, he believed that. So. Right, right. And how do these, these ideals or how do these um, notions about the Zen master, how do they actually hold up to reality testing? Because a big part of your paper is pointing out these very right. specific things that you've seen and researched, and they kind of poke some major holes in, in these these uh, ideals of the Zen master. I was wondering if you could right. share a couple. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think yeah, it's great that you read the paper and saw that's what I'm doing. Because other people just kind of focus on, well, uh, he writes about scandals. That's not what I'm writing about. I'm writing about what you just said, how the system operates, how they create this uh, false image, and how they create uh, mythology and ideal idealizations, mm -hmm. and that that has effects. That's what I'm writing about, not right. about scandals. Right. Anyway, from my point of view, um, I think one important idea to get in mind is from this French sociologist, Pierre Bourdieu. He has an idea of, that he calls the habitus, which is essentially a field or a subculture or, or, or maybe a major culture that produces inclinations and dispositions to get people to act and react in a certain way. So he's come up with this idea to counter the idea that people only work from deliberating and clear-cut calculations. That's not how we operate, right? We don't always decide deliberately in that, that there's something else we'll become inclined and we take on dispositions. And he calls that the habitus. So the thing that we really want to look at is how is that created and instilled in Zen? Mm -hmm. So Zen, in a sense, you know, it kind of disparages words, you know, and, you know, one of its definitions is uh, separate teaching aside from words and teachings. Um, but the fact of the matter is it has this enormous literature. You know, everyone, you know, anyone that's interested in this stuff has read Zen stories, has read about the enlightened Zen master, has read about... Um, the koans and um, and these interactions between the, the master and the teacher, uh, between the master and the student, and they have this enigmatic, enigmatic stories, and they're all they're kind of engaging and charming and that. So people read that. By the time they they um, enter a, a Zen place, or if they're interested in Zen, they have this vision of the Zen master as this. Uh, enigmatic figure that's beyond our comprehension that seems to work from another um, space and has all of these qualities that we've mentioned earlier the right. simplicity, the spontaneity perfect freedom uh, not not the repetitive selfish ideas and uh, always compassionate and even if we don't see it so it that's um, um, people, by the time they get there, they have all of this view. Um, I can give a story. A friend of mine, a uh, very bright guy, but went, had a checkered past in one way or another. But so he went back to school and was a philosophy major. He was in his 40s, and he met a young Russian fellow um, who was um, uh, 21 or something, and was kind of an interesting, curious guy. I got interested, read a little stuff on Zen, 
And then my friend says, well, you know, if you want to come to a place, you could see a Zen master and hear a talk and all that. So the kid's all excited. Right. And he comes to the center, and this guy has never been in a Zen group before. All it is, he's probably read two books at most. He comes in, and, uh, you know, there's this and that going on, and then uh, the Zen, uh, Shifu or Shang Yen came up to, to give a talk, and everyone bows, and the monk, there's a few monks there, and they're... You know, everyone's very deferential, and as all this goes on, and he sits up on the top, and he comes in in his robes and the shaved head and the beads and all this little paraphernalia, <clears throat> and gives his talk. And then after my friend asked him, he said, well, what do you think? He said, I couldn't believe it. When that Zen master walked in, the whole space went pure and quiet, and he carried on like that, right? Mm-hmm. That was from reading <laughs> right. Zen books, reading these stories. He has a a, a rich imagination, and and uh, you know, and we've all done it to one degree or another that, right. at some point. But it's very powerful stuff. That's that's the point. Like this guy from the West Coast that thought Shang Yen knew what's going on in everyone's mind when he's forty yards outside the building walking right. there. Right. right? right. That's. This guy was another case of it, and it's not unique. These are not weird guys. These are not, um, they're not odd cases. I would say it's probably everyone to one degree or another had something like that. I know I certainly did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But there's another idea from Bordeaux um, that, I, that I find really, <laughs> again, very powerful. And he has this basic model of how religious authority is established. Mm. And he says it's a three-part situation. He said there's um, a deep original truth or a truth perfection where there's a sage or a saint or a deity or a being, and that's way back in time. And then two, there has to be a means for bringing that forward in time, that perfection and truth, how to bring that forward in time into the present. And then third, there's a contemporary spokesperson. There's someone um, that carries a spokesperson for that truth, so to speak, who is sanctioned to represent it in the present and distribute it or give it or teach it to the believing public. And they, they just delegate that power to him. So if you match this model, remember, the original deep truth and a means for bringing it forward, and then a contemporary spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Well, Buddha Shakyamuni is the original truth, perfection, perfected figure, a being, uh, idea of what of perfection, um, Dharma transmission, and unbroken lineage. That mythology is the means for that's the engine for bringing it forward. Right. 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 So they create this twenty five hundred years of unbroken lineage. The way the lineage is. Uh, transmitted is through this ritual of Dharma transmission. And mm. then the third aspect is that it's someone sanctioned to uh, be the spokesperson in, in contemporary times, and that's the uh, Zen master. And he's supposed to be the spokesperson for uh, this perfect truth, or truth perfection, and, uh, and he is supposed to distribute this to his believing followers. Um, or the believing public. And the public, essentially, it's not like they're hapless souls being 
funnels um, force-fed, they, in a sense, um, give this power and legitimacy to the, to the Zen master. So, in a sense, they create it, too. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.